Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We have breaking news in the House impeachment inquiry this afternoon. The House of Representatives released more than 300 pages of testimony in which the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, consistently and in detail describes the Trump White House pushing the Ukrainians in what Taylor clearly sees as a quid pro quo. A White House meeting and hundreds of million dollars in aid for Ukraine only if the Ukrainian government announced investigations that Trump clearly saw as helpful to him. Taylor testified that President Trump's point man in the administration on Ukraine, Ambassador Gordon Sondland, quote, told me that President Trump had told him that he wants Ukraine President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. Burisma, of course, is the Ukrainian company on which Joe Biden's son Hunter served on the board. Taylor testifying, quote, that was my clear understanding. Security assistance money would not come until the president of Ukraine committed to pursue the investigation. Question. So if they don't do this, they are not going to get that? Was your understanding? Taylor. Yes, sir. Question. Are you aware that quid pro quo literally means this for that? Taylor. I am. Taylor also describes an odd situation where the president seems to believe that by stating explicitly that something is not a quid pro quo, this for that, that that somehow negates it being one. Sondland telling Taylor President Trump was adamant that President Zelensky himself had to clear things up and do it in public. President Trump said it was not a quid pro quo. Sondland then tells the Ukrainians, quote, although this was not a quid pro quo, if President Zelensky did not clear things up in public, we would be at a stalemate. Taylor says, quote, I understood a stalemate to mean that Ukraine would not receive the much needed military assistance. To state the obvious, declaring something to not be what it clearly is does not change what it clearly is. The House announced today that Bill Taylor will be among the first to testify publicly next week. So starting Wednesday, key witnesses will be under oath in public. CNN's Alex Marquardt has the story. Mr. Taylor, do you think the it's among the most explosive testimonies yet in the impeachment inquiry. Now, the transcript of the deposition of Ambassador Bill Taylor, the most senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, gives a damning on-the-ground perspective. Taylor told lawmakers it was his clear understanding security assistance money would not come until Ukrainian President Zelensky committed to pursue the investigation, meaning into the Bidens and the 2016 election. Taylor added... It was also clear that this condition was driven by the irregular policy channel I had come to understand was guided by Rudy Giuliani. It was also Giuliani, according to Taylor, who came up with the idea of demanding that President Zelensky publicly declare he would investigate the Ukrainian company Burisma that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, had been on the board of. I think you will see in the transcript what a dedicated uh, public servant Ambassador Taylor is, uh, someone who graduated from West Point, uh, someone who served in Vietnam, someone who is, I think, performing another vital service for the country uh, in 
um, relating the facts that came to his attention. Taylor testified that he was told about a meeting on September 1st between the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, and a top aide to President Zelensky, in which Sondland told the aide the security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue the Burisma investigation. Everything was dependent on such an announcement. Days prior, Taylor had written a rare so-called first-person cable to his boss, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, describing the folly I saw in withholding military aid to Ukraine at a time when hostilities were still active in the East and when Russia was watching closely to gauge the level of American support for the Ukrainian government. Taylor was embarrassed. He couldn't tell the Ukrainians why the aid was being held up, and he prepared to resign. Despite these concerns, Taylor admitted he had never talked to the president. Even though Ambassador Taylor didn't speak with the president, he was dealing directly with the people the president was giving orders to and all the while taking meticulous notes. Jake, Ambassador Taylor provided extremely detailed testimony, often referring to those notes. And he told lawmakers that he's always been a careful note taker, writing in a little notebook after conversations or phone calls, which is why when you read this, this testimony often reads like a diary. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, uh, thanks so much. Let's chew over all this. Uh, Laura, let me start with you. I want to start with one section from from the testimony that I found really interesting. Uh, Question. Is your testimony that, hey, you don't make these public statements about these two political investigations we want. You're not getting this meeting. You make these statements, you'll get the meeting. You don't make these statements, you won't. Was that your understanding of the state of affairs in July 2019? And Ambassador Taylor's response is yes. I mean, that's pretty directly a quid pro quo. That is, uh, we will give you this that your country needs in exchange for this, which the president wants for political reasons here at home. Right. And we heard about um, Taylor outlining multiple examples of quid pro quos uh, when he first testified before the full transcript was released. Now, Americans get to read it with their own eyes. And and then again, in a week's time, Taylor is going to publicly testify, we're told. So, so that could potentially... In, in result in a shift in the American public's view of whether or not Trump should be impeached. Yeah, they haven't even seen him speak. If they mm-hmm. see him speak, they'll be able to take the measure of them in. Um, Karen, why don't you respond to this? Because Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican of New York, one of the president's strongest defenders, mm-hmm. is in the testimony as well, asking questions as Republicans got to participate in this process. Absolutely. And he drills down to the fact that Taylor himself never spoke directly with President Trump. Zeldin asks whether Taylor had firsthand knowledge of Trump conditioning the White House meeting on Ukraine announcing these investigations. Zeldin asks, where was this condition coming from if you're not sure it was coming from the president? Taylor, I think it was coming from Mr. Giuliani. Zeldin, but not from the president. Taylor, I don't know. Um, Republicans are pointing to this and saying, look, he doesn't have any firsthand information. It's all coming from Sondland and Volcker and others in, in intermediaries, but nothing directly from Trump. And this is why all these pieces starting to come together, which I hope they'll do a good job of laying out next week, are so important because we have plenty of instances where Taylor says that they were told, you deal with Giuliani. He's the guy. He's the one. He's the channel. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, since you didn't talk directly to the president, you how do you know when he can say, but I was told to deal with Giuliani and this is what I was told we were supposed to do. I mean, and he participated in enough calls and meetings to know what was going on. Uh, and uh, the president's uh, spokeswoman uh, described this, or maybe it was Kelly and Conway, I forget, but, but one of the president's spokespeople said something that this is a, a grown-up male version of telephone. There isn't any, any actual uh, first-hand accounts from uh, people who talked to President Trump. 
what they're trying to do is just disqualify characters in the story. And let's be honest, for the public to keep track of this, there's a lot of names, a lot of people you don't know. Envoy to here, ambassador here. And I am concerned that the Democrats aren't telling a good story for the public. It's like Adam Schiff just saying, well, well, let the American people decide. We're going to have these people testify and hope you can watch the 10 hours of testimony we're going to film without ever explaining what was going on here. We're fighting about quid pro quo, extortion. The bottom line here is that Donald Trump was trying to cheat to win another election. That's a storyline I don't think the Democrats have zoned in on, but they keep thinking, oh, we'll just have another person testify and they'll make the case for us. That's never going to happen. The Republicans have always told a more compelling, if dishonest, story that this is a deep state coup seeking to overturn the election. But I think the point that that Democrats were trying to make, actually, is, again, to put out so much evidence in Mm -hmm. terms of, and it's not even just about a quid pro quo, right? I mean, the the standard for impeachment is conduct unbecoming, right? But I'll say the Republicans just have to disqualify one of those people because but here's the thing coming for the public and, and that's what they're trying to seek to do and this is why i think schiff has always built this case towards the idea that there of course there will be public hearings each of the individuals that we know who are testifying in public next week these are serious thoughtful rational One human beings who are point, not going all to these are going public the big six uh pence pompeo bolton perry mulvaney and giuliani I'm not saying a word. So, Tulu, the, the bigger picture here is I think it is probably a foregone conclusion that the House is going to vote to impeach President Trump. I mean, we don't know that for a fact. We won't know until the vote happens. But I think in all likelihood, that's what's going to happen. The question is, is the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, going to do anything uh, other than uh, not vote to convict? And is the release of all this testimony this week, and, and it's certainly been damning and it certainly suggests a quid pro quo, has it changed the mind of one Republican senator? I think it's changed the strategy of the Republican senators. They've moved from saying the president did nothing wrong, the president is innocent, to basically, yes, he did it, but it's not impeachable. We're going to have an election in a year, so let's let the voters decide. So they've changed their strategy, but in terms of actually breaking from Trump, uh, they're breaking from him in, in the fact that they're not saying that this was a perfect call, as the president has said. They said that they have, have been uncomfortable with the way the president conducted himself on the call, the fact that there was this quid pro quo. They're not comfortable with the fact that military aid that they had voted on and approved was being held up by the president for apparent political ends. Uh, But they are willing to back the president in terms of saying, you know, we're going to vote to not impeach you, not have you removed from office because we don't think it's as big of a problem as the Democrats think it is. So that's where that's where we are. And and, and Amanda uh, Taylor also detailed what he learned secondhand about President Trump's conversations from Sondland. On September 8th, Sondland said he had talked to President Trump. The President Trump was adamant that President Zelensky himself had to clear things up. That means announce the investigations and do it in public. Mm-hmm. President Trump said it was not a quid pro quo. This is one of the most interesting things about this case. President Trump seems to think that by saying this is not a mug, this is not a mug, that that somehow magically makes this not a mug. I think we need to not pay attention to exactly the moving pieces here. And again, go back to what Donald Trump was trying to do. He wanted a sham investigation. He was calling in a country to manufacture some kind of smear against Biden. We keep talking about these investigations like they're actually seeking some le- something legitimate. I remember the Republican campaign when the National Enquirer you know, published a picture, a picture of Ted Cruz's dad saying that he killed JFK. They're looking for a grainy photo. Right. They're not looking for anything real. And next week, the public is going to get to hear from Bill Taylor himself, as also George Ken, who's a State Department official. Marie Ivanovich, who was the former ambassador uh, who was kicked out uh, of her job because of its misinformation coming from various Ukrainians and Rudy Giuliani. 
uh, tomorrow could be or next week, rather, could be much more problematic for the White House than, you know, these hundreds of pages that only the likes of us are reading. It could be. And to what Amanda said, I mean, Democrats to this point have been conducting everything behind closed doors because that's the stage of the investigation that they've been at. And so there's a big question about how they proceed from next week moving Mm -hmm. forward and how they carry out that very public um, case of trying to lay this out to the American people and connect all the dots in a way that they haven't so far, because again, all this information is pretty much overload. And when you're on the trail, you don't really hear about it at all. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, right? So if you think about it, right, we started, we heard about what people supposedly said in their testimony, right? Then the testimony, so we heard it again now that the testimony's been released. Then we're going to hear it again next week when they actually get to say it. So there has been some amount of repetition. And that's part of what Donald Trump is living on, right? Mm-hmm. Social psychology says you say a lie over and over enough times, people will start to believe it. That is clearly how he has made his millions, how he has made it run his fortune. So that's what he's trying to do. I think Democrats are trying to, you know, put the uh, plant those seeds for people so that, again, we all hope, I hope next week it actually lays out to a story that is easy for people to follow. We should also note that uh, with all the complaints from House Republicans about selective leaks, the media coverage has pretty much uh, born scrutiny when it comes to what actually was said in these depositions. Mm-hmm. The media stories about it a week or two ago were completely accurate. Uh, everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. Republicans seizing on part of Bill Taylor's testimony, they claim, clears the president of wrongdoing. What is that? How credible is it? Then it's the name almost every impeachment witness keeps referencing. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Why the president's personal lawyer keeps coming up. Stay with us. Back with the breaking news, perhaps the most damning testimony to date released today by the House of Representatives in its impeachment inquiry. Bill Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, testified that he understood that aid to Ukraine would not be released by President Trump unless investigations into the Bidens and the 2016 election were launched by Ukraine. Joining me now to discuss is Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. She serves on the Senate Judiciary and Senate Armed Services Committees. Senator, thanks for joining me. I, I want to sure. read uh, for you this one uh, section um, of, of the Taylor testimony. Quote, uh, that was my clear understanding, Taylor says. Security assistance money would not come until the president of Ukraine committed to pursue the investigation. Question, so if they don't do this, they are not going to get that. Was your understanding? Taylor, yes, sir. Question, Are you aware that quid pro quo literally means this for that? Taylor, I am. Now, Republicans are out there today noting that Taylor never spoke to President Trump about or or, or even Rudy Giuliani about this. Uh, How do you respond? (laughs) The whistleblower's complaint, which first brought to light that the the president uh, engaged in this kind of uh, what it turns out to be quid pro quo, has been collaborated by Taylor, by others. And so... uh, here, here's the Republicans, you know, they just can't deal with the substance of what the president did. So uh, they're doing all kinds of things uh, to, to muddy the waters. Senator, uh, Republicans continue to argue that uh, no one uh, has testified uh, that President Trump explicitly said uh, they knew to do this in order to get that. Uh, and so what is the response? I mean, uh, Uh, Actually, take a listen to what Senator Lindsey Graham had to say uh, just yesterday. If the president of the Ukraine says, and he keeps saying, no, I did not feel that I had to do anything to get the aid. How do you have a quid pro quo when the person who is the subject of the the probe said it didn't happen? 
So, I mean, what is your response to Senator Graham? He, say, he says, how do you have a quid pro quo when the person who is the subject of the quo says it didn't happen? Do you really expect the new president of Ukraine, which is so dependent on, in the case of this particular situation, 400 million of U.S. money to fight Russia, do you really expect the president to jeopardize his relationship with the United States by saying, oh, yeah, your president is a crook? I don't think so. So we look to other credible testimony, and that's what we have, other credible testimony that says the president shook down the president of another country to uh, get dirt on his political opponents. You, uh, in the first answer, talked about the whistleblower uh, whose um, testimony, whose complaint has largely proven to be accurate, according to all the other witnesses. Today, you introduced a resolution to protect the identity of the whistleblower uh, as you know, uh, there are a number of prominent conservatives, uh, including Donald Trump Jr., uh, trying to out the whistleblower. Uh, Republicans are demanding that he or she come forward publicly. Uh, take a listen to, to Senator Graham once again. I think it's impossible to go forward without knowing who the whistleblower is. The reason that you have whistleblower statutes is to protect people from reprisal, from being fired, not give them anonymity in legal proceedings. So what's your response to that? We have whistleblower protection statutes, not just so that they don't get fired, but to be retaliated against, to be threatened. By the way, the president himself has threatened the whistleblower. So it's to prevent these kinds of actions against the whistleblower. And the whole point of the whistleblower statute is to protect the whistleblower through anonymity. And I tell you that what the Republicans are doing and their minions, the president, and going after the whistleblower is just another massive diversion, which, by the way, undercuts the whistleblower statute, which has been, you know, we have required federal employees to come forward to report wrongdoing in, in the federal government and government since, what, 1789. And there's a reason that we want our federal employees who are in the best position to see wrongdoing in our federal government to come forward without uh, being threatened, retaliated against, or you know, God knows what all. So they're undermining the whistleblower statute, and they don't have to because, one, they don't want to acknowledge that we don't need this particular whistleblower because uh, his or her complaint has been corroborated. They don't want to go there. And I tell you, I don't know what's next, because first they yap about how this is all secret. Well, guess what? Next week, it's all going to be public, starting with Taylor and some of the other people who have already testified. Mm -hmm. the, the depositions have already been released. It's all out in the open. And the House is going to enable the president to participate in their proceedings. So they, that's gone from them. So now they go after the whistleblower. And what's next? Are, going to, are they going to say... The president did it. So what? I call this the so what defense. It's like the Twinkie defense. Has, uh, it's just ridiculous. Do you, so, you is, know, I think they're running out of steam, to tell you the truth. But to attack the whistleblower, that, that cannot be. That's why I put in a resolution today mm -hmm. to have us acknowledge that just as we require federal employees to come forward to report, we have a responsibility to protect them when they do. And, and this report, by the way, was deemed credible and it was deemed urgent. Senator Rand Paul uh, has called on the media to report the name of the whistleblower. And I, I think there are Republicans in the building you're standing in who have said that they might come forward and, and, and name the whistleblower. Is that against the law? It may not be specifically. I wish there was a law that was really on point. But I, to me, uh, if you're going to require people to come forward, uh, there are several protections. And maybe it doesn't protect the whistleblower um, 
against irresponsible members of Congress who want to out the whistleblower, then maybe we need that kind of very specific law. But one would hope that you don't need such a law to remind us of our responsibility, that when someone comes forward as we expect them to do, and it's credible and it's urgent, that we will look to the substance, and we have looked to the substance, at least the House has, and the substance has been corroborated. All right, Senator Mazie Hirono, Democrat from Hawaii, thank you so much. We'll always thank appreciate you. it. Next week, the impeachment inquiry will go public, and President Trump's team is especially concerned about one specific witness. We'll tell you who. Stay with us. So one week from today, the House of Representatives will begin public hearings in the House impeachment inquiry. Big witness on day one, Bill Taylor, who serves as the top diplomat in Ukraine right now, and in testimony released today, said he was told that President Trump was the one pushing the quid pro quo, aid to Ukraine in exchange for Ukraine investigating the Bidens. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the White House is particularly concerned about the impact of Taylor's testimony. We will begin our open hearings uh, in the impeachment inquiry next week. With a date set for the first public hearings in the impeachment inquiry, the White House is bracing itself. We will be beginning with the testimony of Ambassador Taylor and Ambassador Kent uh, on Wednesday. All three witnesses on the schedule have already testified behind closed doors. But now but Democrats will be making their case for impeaching President Trump in public. Sources tell CNN White House officials appear the most concerned about Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine who told lawmakers there was an explicit quid pro quo, according to a transcript released today. The president has tried to dismiss Taylor's word before. He's a never-Trumper. And his lawyers are never Trumper. But there's no proof of that. Some say it will be difficult to discredit the West Point graduate and Vietnam veteran who is still on the job, though some allies are trying. Now, who in the heck can follow that? Someone told someone that I told someone that someone else knew about this in a different meeting. The president's allies are also seeking to discredit his ambassador to the European Union a Republican donor turned diplomat who gave a million dollars to Trump's inauguration. Gordon Sunland revised his testimony to reveal a September conversation where he told a top Ukrainian aide the resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement. Instead, the president and his allies are now relying on special envoy Kurt Volker, who told lawmakers he didn't know there was a quid pro quo. Sondland, in his statement, not even sure why he has the opinion he has, and Volcker was completely read in on everything that everybody was doing. The White House believes the release of the transcripts is good for them. So these transcripts are actually, they're good for the president. Now, Jake, we have also learned that the White House is adding two new staffers to its ranks as they fight House Democrats over this impeachment probe. Tony Sag is a former senior advisor to the Treasury Secretary who left the administration several months ago. Pam Bondi is the former attorney general in Florida, and both are expected to come on in a temporary capacity to help the administration with its messaging strategy that they have going on or lack of, if you ask Republicans on Capitol Hill. And this seems to be a tacit acknowledgement that the White House is going to need some help here. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. In the deposition released this afternoon, Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, says, quote, if President Zelensky, in order to get that meeting, we're going to have to intervene in U.S. domestic policy or politics by announcing an investigation that would benefit someone in the United States, it wasn't clear to me that that would be worth it. I became less convinced, Taylor said, 
that that meeting was worth what Giuliani was asking. What Giuliani was asking. Digging up dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden. The president's personal attorney has mentioned more than 400 times in the transcripts released this week. I want to bring in CNN's Tom Foreman now. And Tom, everyone in these transcripts says that Giuliani had a central role in what I think most people would consider to be the Ukraine scandal. Absolutely, Jake. Bill Taylor, a top diplomat, was asked about his dealings with the Ukrainians. We've been talking about him for a while here. And this is part of the exchange he had during his testimony. And they certainly understood that Mr. Giuliani represented President Trump, correct? He said they did. Because why else would they care what Rudy Giuliani thought, meaning the Ukrainians? And he said, correct. When the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, testified, now he's been an ally of Trump, he suggested even the State Department had to answer to the president's personal lawyer. Did you ever discuss Rudy Giuliani with Secretary Mike Pompeo? Only in general terms. And what did you discuss? that he's involved in affairs. And Pompeo rolled his eyes and said, yes, it's something we have to deal with. This has been the pattern as one witness after another has painted the president's personal lawyer as deeply involved in all dealings with Ukraine, saying Giuliani was stoking the president's mistrust of Ukraine, pushing for an investigation into Joe Biden and his son, and promoting a conspiracy theory that the Russians did not try to help Trump in 2016, but rather the Ukrainians tried to help Hillary Clinton, which has been debunked. And remember, according to that rough transcript of that phone call, Trump told the Ukrainian president, Rudy very much knows what's happening, and he is a very capable guy. If you could speak to him, that would be great. They're all putting Giuliani at the middle of everything. But now, suddenly, people close to the president are saying something very different about Giuliani. I don't know what Rudy did. I don't know what he's doing over there. If people want to look at Rudy, that's fine with me. I don't know what the role of Rudy Giuliani was. I just don't have visibility into that. I, I just don't know what his role was. Well, their implication seems pretty clear. It's not the president's fault if Rudy went rogue. Jake? Hmm. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead today, one of the people who ran Trump's 2016 campaign will testify against the latest Trump associate facing charges related to that campaign. Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign executive, will testify against Roger Stone. The prosecutor said in his opening statement that Stone, who was accused of obstruction of justice, among other charges, repeatedly lied under oath to Congress because, quote, the truth looked bad for the Trump campaign and the truth looked bad for Donald Trump, unquote. Shimon, Shimon Prokipes uh, joins me now to discuss. Uh, and Shimon, Bannon ran the campaign, uh, or at least was one of the leading people running it. How critical will his testimony be to the prosecution's case? Well, it appears it's going to be super critical, Jake. Prosecutors, uh, as you say, not only was he leading this campaign, uh, they described to the jury, they described him as being the CEO of the campaign uh, and how he and Roger Stone were in touch, that they were talking uh, over emails, that they were going back and forth uh, in their discussions. In one email that the prosecutors highlighted to the jury, uh, this happened in the summer in the height of when WikiLeaks was threatening to issue, to release more emails. Uh, he says, the prosecutor says that Stone emails Bannon saying that Trump could win and then quote, but it ain't pretty. And then Bannon replies, let's 
talk, uh, prosecutors then say that Bannon and Stone were talking WikiLeaks all summer long, uh, saying that Stone uh, had told Bannon that he had inside information about what Julian Assange was doing. So by all accounts right now, they're pointing to Steve Bannon, prosecutors are, at least in their opening statements, uh, that he is intended to, that they intend to bring him in and that he's going to be a key witness in this case. And Shimon, we're also learning more uh, about Stone's communication on the day of the DNC hack. Tell us about that. Yeah, and so this was a big point, came very quickly early on. It was the first witness in this case, a former FBI agent who actually was working for the Mueller team. Uh, and her role in this, Michelle Taylor, was the Roger Stone part of this. She was investigating Roger Stone. And she was highlighting how many times Roger Stone and then candidate Donald Trump were in communication. She went over the number of times that Roger Stone would call Donald Trump, the number of times that Donald Trump called Roger Stone on his cell phone, at his home phone, uh, about five times in total. And this was all happening when reports first started surfacing that WikiLeaks and that the DNC uh, had been hacked. All right, Shimon Prokopis, thanks so much. Appreciate it. What the elections in Kentucky and Virginia could tell Democrats and President Trump about what's to come next year. That's next. Stay with us. If you lose, they're going to say Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me. That was uh, President Trump on uh, Monday night speaking to Kentucky voters. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's the worst defeat in the history of the world, but they did. Republicans did lose a big governor's race in Kentucky, and the Trump campaign is rushing to distance themselves now. State officials declared the Democratic governor a Democratic candidate for governor, having beaten the Trump-backed Republican Matt Bevin. Democrats also pulled out key victories in the Commonwealth of Virginia, flipping both chambers of the state legislature. Blue wins that Democrats see as setting a clear path forward for 2020. Let's discuss. So, Tulu, uh, in the Mississippi governor's race, a Republican won that. Uh, and uh, beyond the governor's race in Kentucky, Republicans point to the other five statewide races were Republican uh, victories. Uh, what's the top line for you about election night? What, what, what do you see as most important? Uh, Kentucky is still a red state in all of those lower level races, but the governor's race is the most important race in the state. President Trump went there the night before to campaign for the incumbent Republican governor. And even though he was unpopular, he lost to a Democrat. And it shows that Democrats can still win in difficult places. They can still win a lot of these suburban voters who we've seen flee the Republican Party. We saw that in Virginia as well, places like Fairfax County that no longer have any Republicans. It's been a very major shift under President Trump which uh, has shown that Republicans in suburban suburbia no longer support the Republican Party of Donald Trump. So red parts of the of the country are still red, like Mississippi, but places that had been swing areas or had been uh, home to a lot of college-educated suburban voters are no longer with the president, and that really bodes uh, negatively for the president in 2020 in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and parts of Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and Amanda, I want to let me. I, I'm coming right to you. I want to show you the screen. One of the Democrats' key to success in Kentucky was winning over suburban voters, uh, including. I mean, just look at including the metro, major metropolitan areas, mm -hmm. uh, areas around coal country where Trump has done really well, and the northern suburbs uh, near Cincinnati, which have traditionally been Republican. 
I mean, and also this happened, I should point out, in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I come from, in, the, in the, some of the sur- suburbs there, Delaware County, Chester County, Bucks County, they're increasingly the suburban counties that used to be battlegrounds are really just becoming blue. You're a suburban mom. Mm-hmm. Like, is, this some, is there a lesson here for Republicans to worry about? Yeah, and I'm afraid that they don't want to learn the lesson. If you ask why are they losing, they'll say, oh, well, it's just turning blue because it's suburbia. Well, guess what? If you can't win the cities, you can't win suburbs, you can't win excerpts, you don't have a winning coalition. And I'm concerned, why can't they make an argument to suburban voters? I mean, these are usually middle-class families that care about health care, um, education, and increasingly gun violence. These are three issues that the Republicans have no answers for. They're not even having a conversation about it, and they're getting wiped out. But what the Republican answer is, we're going to take away your health care with pre-existing conditions, and you know we're going to let Donald Trump run wild so that your kids can't even watch the news. I mean, that was some of the things we've heard both in 2018, and we're seeing it again now in this uh, as of yesterday, that, again, suburban voters are the ones who are saying, I'm tired of the meanness. I don't like that. Uh, And I guess for them, the question in 2020 will be, if you think you're doing better, like, is your 401k better? Is it worth it for four more years of this guy you really don't like to keep your 401k? I would say that the thing that was most interesting uh, from the Democratic perspective is the turnout, the size of the turnout in Mm -hmm. Kentucky, which was, I think, the biggest it's been since they've been a governor's race since 1985. So that that was important. And similarly in Virginia, Mm -hmm. part of Trump's problem is he can't grow, to your point, right? There's, there's no new voters. We, have, we can continue to grow our coalition. He can't. And, Laura, I, I, we could talk about this all day, and it, right. would, it fascinates me, but I do want to turn to one other big, big poll that surprised me, a new poll uh, out of Iowa among Democratic uh, likely uh, caucus goers. It has Warren at 20 percent, Buttigieg at 19. I mean, that's basic. That's in the margin of error. Sanders at 17, also in the margin of error. Biden is in fourth place at 15. And that's followed by uh, Klobuchar and, and Harris. Uh, and then there's a three-way tie mm-hmm. at the bottom. Um, I mean, Joe Biden in fourth place in Iowa is, is staggering. And also, that Buttigieg uh, <laughs> right. bump that people are talking about, that's, that's real. That is real. And, and uh, when it comes to Biden, his campaign for a while now has been telegraphing that he may not come in first or second in Iowa. And, and now these polls are starting to show that there's the chance that he also doesn't come first or second in New Hampshire. And so the question is, if those uh, numbers hold in the next 100 days or so, then then can he hold on to the other areas that he needs, which is South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states, or do they start to change their mind? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. a victory in Iowa tends to have an impact on what happens in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. I got the order wrong. Forgive me, Nevadans. Um, the president's defense secretary trying to stop the president from doing something uh, that sent military leaders scrambling. That story next. Stay with us. In our national lead today, top Pentagon officials, including the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, hope to intervene in a big announcement that may be coming soon from President Trump. According to CNN sources, Esper wants to stop President Trump from dismissing the criminal sentences or charges against three service members accused of various war crimes. As CNN's Barbara Starr reports for us now, the announcement from the president could come on Veterans Day. I do have full confidence in the military justice system. Defense Secretary Mark Esper making his first public remarks about stopping President Trump from dismissing criminal cases against service members accused of potential war crimes. 
I had the chance to uh, uh, have a, a robust discussion with the president uh, yesterday, and I offered, as I do in all matters, uh, the, the facts, uh, the options, my advice, the recommendations, and we'll see how things play out. An administration official confirming to CNN the president is still considering the idea. An idea first reported on Fox News. That action is eminent. Which CNN has learned had Esper, as well as Army and Navy leaders, scrambling, assembling the case files in order to urge the president to let the military justice system take its course rather than appear to endorse troops charged and potentially convicted of wrongdoing. You could potentially put leaders in a difficult position in terms of their ability to enact good order and discipline on their own troops. Uh, if they believe that, well, they can just get pardoned by the president. On the list of accused service members, Army Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who was found guilty in 2013 of second-degree murder for ordering his men to fire on three men on a motorcycle in Afghanistan. Petty Officer Eddie Gallagher, a Navy SEAL, who faced a court-martial for killing a wounded prisoner and shooting at civilians. He was found not guilty, but was found guilty of posing for a photo with a dead person, and he was demoted. And Army Green Beret Major Matthew Goldstein, who is charged with the murder of an Afghan man. His lawyer has maintained the death occurred during a mission ordered by his superiors. Trump tweeted last month that the case of Major Matthew Goldstein is now under review at the White House. We train our boys to be killing machines, then prosecute them when they kill. Train to be killing machines? One young officer said to me about that. That is not who we are. Jake. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. The mystery about the massacre of an American family in Mexico growing. That's ahead. President Trump just moments ago not responding to reporters' questions amid even more impeachment news today. He was leaving the White House on his way to a rally in Louisiana tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 